Somebody's harp is going off. We're beginning a new series this morning. Working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, chosen to embark on this letter at this time for a number of reasons. One of which is that I think that it's a pretty good follow-up to where we've been in our series on what it means to be born again. For the last two months, we saw that the new birth is God's gracious and indeed radical work where even though we were dead in our rebellion and in our unbelief, and I mean D-E-A-D, dead, not just sick or, no, we were dead. We were not crying out for help or to be saved. That was our status. And because of His love and through His grace and mercy, God made us alive together with Christ. God caused us to be born again. He removed our heart of stone. He replaced it with a heart of flesh. He put His Spirit inside of us, enabling us to embrace Jesus as He's freely offered in the gospel, to embrace Him through faith and repentance. That's what it means to be born again. That's where we've been. And so this morning, even this morning, if you find yourself trusting in Christ, if you find yourself resting in His finished work, and as a result of that, you find yourself more and more, though not perfectly, but more and more loving Him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, more and more loving your neighbor as yourself, if that's you, then guess what? You've been born again. You've been born again. Now what? Now what? What next? What now? What do we do? Now I want to put a very fine point on this question because it's a question that I want you to wrestle with for the entirety of our time in Galatians. And I'm going to try really, really hard, though I don't know how successful I will be. I'm going to try really, really hard to not answer that question for you. Because it is so very important that you answer it for yourself. And Galatians will help you do that. And the question is this. If you've been born again. If, if you are now a Christian, a Christ follower, what is required next? What now must you do? What is, it, what is required? What must you do now that you are a Christian to stay a Christian? What is required? What must you do to remain in God's good graces? 
There's, there's a blank there on your outline in the worship folder. Fill it in right now. Borrow a pen, borrow a pencil. What is it that you have to do? Is it one thing? Is it several things? Fill it in. I'll give you a moment. I want you to give this some thought. I want you to write this down. I want you to keep this question and your answer in the back of your minds as we begin to work our way through this very, very important letter. Galatians. It's perhaps the very first letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it to Christians in the churches that he helped plant on his first missionary journey. Right, you got those maps in the back of your Bible with the, the little colored lines that show you which missionary journey went which places. This was the first one. It's uh, the events recorded in Acts 13 and 14, if you want to take a look at that. But he's writing this letter to those churches. He's writing it about a year after he planted the churches, and those churches are already experiencing a big problem. And so Paul's writing to address it. And we're not actually going to get to the problem today. We'll get to the problem next week. Such a tease. Just the introduction today, but rest assured that this problem has something to do with that question that I just asked you and the answer that I made you write down. But for now, just the first five verses of chapter 1. So stand if you're able. For the reading of God's Word, may God grant to our hearts and to our minds this respectful posture that our bodies are demonstrating. May that be true of our hearts and our minds as we approach God's Word this morning. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come to your word this morning trusting that your word is doing all that you promised it would do. That when it goes forth, it would not return void, but it would accomplish everything that you have intended it to accomplish. So this morning we pray for your Spirit's help in understanding this word in seeking its application to our hearts and our lives, in seeking to be corrected where we need to be corrected, in seeking to know you and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Use your word in a powerful way this morning to those ends, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. 
So these five verses serve as Paul's introduction to this letter. But don't let introduction make you think that they're somehow insignificant because they're not. Two big things that we see here coming from these few verses, right from the start, we see Paul's authority and we see his theology. So let's look at authority first there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Now that's an interesting title. That's an interesting position or role. Sometimes we'll find folks today who claim that title. Apostle so-and-so. Preaching at such-and-such revival or something like that. And that's all well and good on one level. Because the word literally means one sent out. It's a messenger. And so I'm sure there are lots of apostles, quote-unquote, today, those who have been sent out, those who have a message to deliver. But that's not the kind of apostle Paul was claiming to be. No, he's claiming to be an apostle in the biblical capital A apostle sense. Mark tells us about apostles capital A Apostles, in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. So we see here apostles are personally chosen by Christ. They are called, they are commissioned, they are authorized. See, these guys didn't just sense that they'd been called by Christ. They didn't have a holy hunch that they were supposed to go and and teach in His name. No, they were actually in person... Chosen, called, sent, authorized by the Lord Jesus himself in the flesh. And so indeed, this is a small group of people. It's a small and unique group of people. And it's that group that Paul is claiming membership in. And he immediately begins to defend that claim. He says that being an apostle for him is divine in its origin and its delivery. Look again at verse 1. His apostleship is not from men. So no group of men decided that he would be an apostle. And it wasn't through any man. It, It wasn't even announced through men. Paul, being an apostle, was a divine idea and it was divinely announced. No humans were involved. That's the claim that he's making, and that's part of what makes being an apostle unique. That's also why we don't have them anymore today, 
in that capital A biblical sense, okay? It's a calling that no longer exists. Now, contrast that with my calling as a pastor or with the calling of our ruling elders. Okay? Think about that for just a second. Because I would certainly believe and, and hope that it is God who has called me to serve His church as a pastor. I certainly hope that it is God who has called our ruling elders to serve His church in that capacity. So it's got to be divine in its origins, but there were a bunch of humans involved in the process. Right? Even in my calling as a pastor, divine in its origins, I trust, whole bunch of humans involved at Presbytery when I was licensed to preach and then ordained for the gospel ministry. Whole lots of guys involved in that coming alongside saying, you know what? We agree with you. We do believe that you've been called of the Lord to this task. Right? Even y'all were involved when you elected me to be your pastor in this congregation. Right? Human involvement. Divine origin, human involvement. That's how it works for us. But Paul says, nah not me. No humans involved here. It was only the Lord Jesus and God the Father. Now, note too how Paul slips this little reference to the resurrection in here. Now, Paul opens most of his letters in a similar format to this, but this is the only one where he's making reference to the resurrection. He's usually saying, I'm Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, something like that. But here he's saying both of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he mentions God the Father, he's specifically saying the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. So we've got this resurrection reference. And that's interesting. Because one of the tests, if you will, one of the criteria of who it is that we would look at the Bible and say, yep, that was an apostle is that they've witnessed the resurrected Lord. They have seen Jesus in the flesh after the resurrection. Paul mentions that criteria himself a couple of times. 1 Corinthians 9, he's arguing, asking these questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Then later in 1 Corinthians 15, where he is uh, talking about Christ having risen from the dead as part of this uh, content of the gospel. And he then goes on to list all of the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. He appeared to so-and-so and so-and-so and and 500 here. And then he says in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 15, Last of all, as to one untimely born, see he realizes this is a little out of sorts. This is a little beyond the pale. It's not quite normal, but... He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. Jesus appeared to Paul. Right? All you need to do is look at Acts 9. We won't turn there right now. But that is on the Damascus Road when Jesus appeared to Paul. 
And so I think that's a great segue with this series that we've just been in about being born again, born again because if there ever was a good example of someone being born again in Scripture, it's, the, it's Saul who became Paul on that Damascus road. Hardened in his rebellion and unbelief, wasn't seeking God at all. And God said, oh, hold on, you're mine. Jesus appeared to Paul. And so Paul is opening this letter on the defensive. Let me just get my credentials straight here. Let me make sure you get them straight. Well, why is that? Is he just on some ego trip? He's got the big head full of himself. No. As we will come to find out, he has had his authority questioned and attacked. Because in the advance of the false teaching that's been going on in these churches in Galatia, those who are spreading theological error have needed to call Paul's authority into question in order to succeed. And so Paul vigorously defends his apostolic authority as a means of defending the gospel. That's why this is a big deal, right? If, if you've spent any time in the Bible, if, you, if you've read Paul, then you know. You know he could not possibly care any less about prestige or title or privilege. But he will die to defend the gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus. That's why his apostolic authority is such a big deal. Now, the other thing we need to see this morning from this introduction, in addition to Paul's authority, is his theology. So these verses are an introduction. This is not a, a major teaching section, if you will. But they still reveal very clearly what it is that Paul believes. We get a glimpse kind of of, of what he just assumes to be true from the beginning. This is the, the foundation from which he works and which he operates as he writes this letter. So look at verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Now I want us to unpack this just a little bit. And I want us to start right there in the middle, the heart of what Paul has said, and then work our way out from the middle. Because the middle right there is highlighted for you that he gave himself. It's like the, the, the nucleus of this paragraph. So he gave himself. So right off the bat, this is a sacrifice that we're dealing with. This is a sacrifice that we're talking about. He gave himself Think, of course, of Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life as a sacrifice. So it's a sacrifice. We also see here pretty clearly it's a willing sacrifice. Right? He gave himself. No one, no one took his life. He gave it himself. 
Jesus was adamant about this in his teaching. John records it in chapter 10. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Y'all, it was his doing. The sacrifice was his doing. Next thing you see is that this was a sacrifice. He gave his life for our sins. There there was a, a purpose here. The sacrifice is is a substitute. It's for something. It's in the place of something. It's a sacrifice in the place of another. His sacrifice is in our stead. It's because of our sins that we deserve justly death and judgment. Because the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself in our place, He bore in Himself the curse and the judgment for our sins. Even that sacrifice was a means to an end. Look what happened. Why did he do it? He sacrificed himself. He gave himself. And as he did that, he delivered us. We needed to be delivered. Now, some of your translations might say he rescued us. I like that even better. I think that captures what's going on here a little bit better. That that specific word gets used several times, specifically in Acts. And here are the types of things that it's describing as delivered or or rescued. Um, God's people rescued from slavery in Egypt. Peter rescued from prison and from the hand of Herod, Paul rescued from a mob that wanted to lynch him. This is a rescue operation. And it's only here in Galatians that that word gets used in a metaphorical sense, speaking of our salvation. All those other things are like actual, literal rescues. And Paul then uses it in Galatians to say that we've been rescued. We've been delivered And y'all, that's exactly what our salvation is, is a rescue. It's a rescue job. It's not life improvement. It's not helping you be a better person. It's not why Jesus came. And it's this point that differentiates. It differentiates Jesus and Christianity from every other religion in the world. Buddha didn't come to rescue. Muhammad didn't come to rescue. That idea would have been foreign to him if you had asked him. Krishna didn't come to rescue. But Jesus came to give himself as a sacrifice in our place that he might rescue us from, see there's more, rescue us from the present evil age. One of the themes that we're going to see along the way in Galatians is that when Christ came, he inaugurated, he ushered in 
a whole new era, a whole new age. Because see, we'd been operating in one age before Christ came, and that age was, was bondage. It was bondage to sin and to death and to the evil one for that matter. It was an age in which we stood accused and condemned by the law. But Jesus comes and he inaugurates a new age where absolutely everything is different. Where we are rescued from sin and death and the power of the evil one. Where the law no longer accuses and condemns. Much, much more to be said about that later. Why did he do all this? We've seen these these layers, all these different things Jesus did. Why did he do this? Was it because we're just so lovable? We're just so darn cute he couldn't resist. Not exactly. He did it because it pleased the Father to do it. He did it. Everything he did in securing our rescue was the good pleasure of the Father. It was according to His will. So all these things in verse 4, you see how chock full that one verse is? All those things allow Paul to offer to the Galatians what he offers to them back in verse 3. Grace and peace. Now, Paul often begins his letters with a similar offer. Many different letters he opens saying, grace and peace to you. But just because he often does it, does not mean that these are throwaway words. This is not just filler. This isn't just, I hope this letter finds you doing well because we don't know what else to say to get to the point of why we're writing. This is not filler, it's substance. Paul says, you need grace. Let me offer to you grace. I know where you can get it. Paul says, you need peace. And I know where you can find the only peace that you need with the only one with whom you need to have peace, which is God Almighty. one who we once were enemies with because of our sin and rebellion. You can now be at peace with him. So it's all the heart of what's going on in 4 allows him to make this offer in verse 3. Now look at the end result on the other side of verse 4. Verse 5. What's the end result of this? So it was God's will to accomplish all of this in and through his Son... They do all the work. Do you realize that in all we just listed out in verse 4, not a single thing had to do with us. We didn't lift a finger in verse 4. They did it all. Every ounce of it. Therefore, glory be to God. Glory. Glory. How could this not 
end up in worship and praise and adoration of our great God and our great Savior forever and ever. These are the things that were foundational to Paul. These are the things that were just givens. I don't even have to think twice about these things. They're so deeply ingrained. These are the things that he assumes as he writes this letter. These are the things that as born-again Christians, we need to have as our foundation. Drilled deep down. But they are, in fact, things that you and I can never, ever assume in the negative sense of that word, in the negative meaning of assume, where we begin to take for granted. Where they just kind of, eh, ho-hum. Yeah, there's that gospel stuff. It's no big deal. It's not really that important. Don't have to stick exactly by what it says. You can add this or that or change this or that. See, that's, that's apparently what the Galatians have done. They, they assumed... They took it for granted. And they wound up abandoning the gospel. And that's why Paul's writing. And you have to come back next week to see what he's writing about the problem. Let's pray. Oh God, may we have such a foundation. And may it never become ho-hum. May we never take it for granted But would you take and would you drill it down deep into our hearts? Would you beat it into our heads continually as Martin Luther wrote of it? We're prone to forget. In our flesh, we're prone to add to and take away. But would you help us, even with these things that we've been reminded of in these few verses this morning, Would you take it and drill it down deep? Would you make it bedrock for us? From which we live our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing in response.